Is slavery still legal in America? A New York state lawmaker says yes. That is for incarcerated New Yorkers, thanks to a 13th Amendment loophole. While several states have banned forced prison labor, New York has not. Tonight, that lawmaker and an inmate turned advocate who once worked for pennies an hour take us inside the prison slavery system as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The American criminal justice system dictates that if you do the crime, you have to do the time. And as far as many people are concerned, those who are imprisoned forfeit their rights as soon as they walk into a cell. It's a view that's actually built into the Constitution itself. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery at the federal level, actually makes an exception for the incarcerated. And it's that slavery loophole that's allowed the proliferation of forced prison labor across the country. Recently, a growing number of states have passed laws to end the practice of uncompensated prison labor. But so far, New York State is not one of them. Some lawmakers in Albany want to change that and have introduced legislation to end the practice and require that incarcerated people make at least minimum wage for their work. So joining me now to talk about the issue of prison labor as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative focusing on justice and inequality is New York Assemblymember Harvey Epstein, who introduced the recent legislation. Welcome, Assemblymember Epstein. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for talking about this really important issue. Of course, of course. Also with us is Johnny Perez, a prison reform advocate, formerly incarcerated New Yorker who for years sewed sheets and pillowcases for pennies an hour. He was also threatened with and spent three years in solitary confinement. He's now the director of the U.S. Prisons Program at the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. Johnny, welcome to Metro Focus. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to welcome Jesse Koklis. She is a statewide organizer for ending mass incarceration at Citizen Action of New York. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Assemblyman, I want to start with you actually, because I think it might be surprising for some people to realize that the 13th Amendment, which is famed for abolishing slavery, actually has a loophole built into it. Can you expand a little bit on what that is? Yeah, of course. And so we've all heard about the 13th Amendment and how the U.S. Constitution and New York State Constitution mirrors that language, abolishes slavery. The exception is for people who are incarcerated. So there's mandatory slave labor that happens in New York State in their prisons every single day because of state law and then federal law allows it. Our job is to change the state constitution to stop the mandatory labor and then 
also provide a minimum wage for those people who are voluntarily doing the work while they're incarcerated. Now, just to give a sense of what kind of work that we're talking about, Johnny, I want to go to you and get a little bit more about your experience um, while you were in prison, specifically working sewing, um, things like pillowcases and sheets. Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, and thank you, Harvey, for bringing, you know, for even introducing this important conversation in the state. And yeah, out of the out of six out of thirteen years, I worked at I worked at Kaksaki Correctional Facility for Coalcraft Industry, where I worked as a seamstress. Where I sold sheets, socks, pillowcases, uh, you kind of name it. And you know, we basically made seventeen cents on the dollar. There were no sick days. There were no off days. There were no bereavement days. There were, in fact, if I decided not to go to work, you know, as you mentioned in my introduction, um, you will be sent to solitary confinement, which is 23 to 24 hours a day, locked down with little to no human contact. Um, so that was part of my experience dealing with forced labor in New York State. And Jesse, from your organization's perspective, um, how do you view the way that uh, this forced prison labor has been incorporated perhaps in an unconscious way to most Americans, but incorporated into our economies. Yeah, so, um, and just to say again, we're part of the 13-4 coalition, which is a statewide or, uh, coalition of more than 50 organizations um, from across the state of New York, um, broad, broad coalition. And we see um, this has a real problem because it's really the state that's uh, profiting off of this unpaid labor, um, which as Johnny mentioned is just pennies on the dollar. And the range in New York state is 10 cents an hour to 65 cents an hour for all types, all, all manner of jobs from all of the jobs that um, folks do to make the prison run, uh, like cleaning and cooking, um, to things like asbestos abatement, lead paint abatement, to the industry jobs like Johnny mentioned um, that go to that prop up the state um, industries, creating things like like pillowcases, like Johnny mentioned, but also the furniture that our legislators sit on, the, the desks that our school children sit at. Um, one thing that, um, you know, really brought this to a lot of people's attention is during the pandemic, folks inside were um, producing personal protective equipment like hand sanitizer without personal protective equipment themselves. And um, the fact that these workers are paid pennies on the dollar, you know, allows um, the state to cost save off the off their backs of our incarcerated workers across the state. So can I just add one thing? If we can Absolutely. take this, just remember, there's two pieces here. One is that the law allows mandatory work and voluntary work, and then on top of it, the law allows Corecraft, this entity to steal people's wages by not paying them the minimal wage. So they're basically, we're supporting wage theft for our incarcerated brothers and sisters by saying, we're going to pay you 13 cents an hour, even though what Corecraft is making is made by other companies. Every, every police station, every government building, all these things are items that are in our, in our, in the, around us are being made by incarcerated people and then Corecraft is benefiting by their labor by selling it to the public and selling it to other government entities. So not only are we first abusing people by forcing them to work, and second of all, we're, we're paying them so little that they can't even buy toilet paper or toothbrushes while they're incarcerated. And we're putting their families in debt. One out of every three incarcerated people 
their families are going to de- into debt just to support the, the incarcerated person with basic necessities like toothbrushes and toothpaste and soap. Well, Assemblyman, what I want to get at is this legislation that you introduced, because as I talked about, um, the 13th Amendment, which again is famed for abolishing slavery at the federal level, what is exactly in this legislation that would put an end to forced prison labor, or at least unfairly compensated prison labor in New York State? Right. So it just pulls out the exception. It just says, you know, you can't, you, it's the 13th Amendment abolished slavery except for incarcerated people. We're pulling the exception language out of our state constitution. So there'll be no exceptions. So we're saying you can't force people into labor no matter where they are, whether they're incarcerated or not. Then we're saying on top of it, then after we change the constitution, then we were requiring the government to pay minimum wage. So that there's a, there's two pieces of this that need to be done. The end the constitutional allowing for slavery, and then second of all, creating the minimum wage for our incarcerated people. May I add to that? Yes. Yes. So, like um, Assemblymember Epstein said, we have two bills. One is the constitutional amendment, pretty straightforward, and then and all, in addition to ending the forced labor. Um, you know, it, it would mean that folks can't be punished for refusing to work, which now um, folks face solitary confinement, loss of family visits, um, loss of good time credits, which allow people to earn time off their sentence. Um, and then the second bill, um, in addition to raising wages, which is obviously super important, we also, um, it also institutes health worker worker health and safety protections, which as I mentioned, folks are performing some dangerous jobs inside with with none of those protections because they're not considered workers to the state. So they're not covered by things like OSHA. Um, And then another big aim of this campaign is to provide pathways to employment post-incarceration. So this bill would set up, um, would basically redo the job training programs um, inside with now the specific purpose of providing pathways to employment post-incarceration um, because we've we've heard that the training inside um, from many of our um, incarcerated members who are part of this coalition is that they're just really not helpful. Like someone was describing even a computer program um, when they were incarcerated two years ago that where the operating system was on a floppy disk. So I think that's really just setting people back rather than giving them the skills and tools to succeed upon release. Um, because most people in our state prisons and jails are released. And, um, you know, studies show that if if you get, get gainful employment um, upon release, you're less likely to be rearrested and return um, to prison and jail. Um, so those, those are some other things um, that uh-huh. the bill does. Well, Johnny, I want to turn to you and first ask if you're comfortable answering this question. Um, what I guess, what was it that landed you in jail or in prison? Yeah, and I really appreciate that question. And that's a question that I get a lot, especially in the context of these conversations. And I find that when people try, when people ask what somebody was incarcerated for, they're trying to evaluate whether somebody should still be treated fairly, whether somebody should still be treated with dignity. So do I still deserve the right to be a father because of what I did? And I'm, and I, and I think what I want to highlight is that you know, and in the spirit of the bill, is that regardless of who you are and what you've done, you still deserve a basic level of human dignity. You still are part of a larger society that we all know you're going to come back into. You're still able to be a father. You know, you're still able to have sick time when you need sick time and that you don't know. Because the way that we treat people says more about us than it says about them. 
So if we are a society of compassion, second chances, of community, even of safety, and we are to uphold those values, then it doesn't matter what somebody was incarcerated for, and everybody deserves a living wage. Well, I'm going to give you the final question uh, because we are coming up on the end of our time together. But what kind of a difference would it have made, not just for you, but also for your family, uh, had you been paid at least minimum wage for your the work and the labor that you provided? Yeah, before I was removed from society, I was the head. I was the, I was the head of the household, which allowed which when I, when I was removed from society, then I forced my family to now have you know less income. So I was I would better not only send money home, you know, and also show up and. Uh, support my daughter's mother who you know was still out here by herself you know but also I think that there's a this this something we didn't tap into is that you know there's a there's a level of dehumanization that goes on that 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 actually impacts your mental health impacts your self-worth impacts your own dignity so when I came out I didn't even feel worth that I was even worth more than a dollar because I had been paid less than a dollar for years while Colecraft made millions off of the sheets that I sold. I sold 24 dozen a day, every day for five years at 17 cents an hour. And they made $12 per dozen in my time. So it would have not only made a major difference in me and my personal development, my family, but I think it would have made a difference in the community because we'll uphold, uphold these values. So um, thank you for allowing me to share that. Absolutely. Well, like I said, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time together, but I do want to thank all of my guests, Assembly Member Harvey Epstein, uh, Johnny Perez, and of course, Jesse Kokles. Thank you so much for bringing an important issue like this to the forefront and joining us on Metro Focus. Thank you. Thank you. So what makes a leader? And are leaders born or are they made? Pulitzer Prize-winning author and presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin has spent the past few decades writing in-depth biographies of America's leaders, and in her latest book, titled Leadership in Turbulent Times, she draws upon four past presidents, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Baines Johnson, and examines what made each the right leader for his time, and what today's aspiring and established leaders can learn from them. And we are delighted to welcome a good friend from a long time ago, Doris Kearns Goodwin, here to Metrofocus. It's so nice to see Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. They are so very different, these, these four characters. But when you looked at them again through the lens of leadership, did you find similarities amongst them that maybe hadn't been revealed to you before? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's true. They came from entirely different backgrounds, two of them very privileged, the Roosevelts, Lincoln and LBJ, much more difficult poverty, concern about economics. Um, they had different temperaments. They're at different times. And I think it's true that sometimes the temperament fits the time. But there was a family resemblance that I could see when I looked at them all together of humility. Um, you wouldn't think of LBJ in humility at first, but not humbleness. It's the ability to acknowledge errors and yeah, what, what's, learn what's from the, your mistakes. What's the difference when you say humility as opposed to humbleness? Well, because you probably for the four of them, maybe Lincoln, you might, but the other three, that's not usually the first word that's going to pop into your right. mind. Right. And, and, and it doesn't mean that you have a low estimate or you're meek or humble. It just means that you accept that humans have limitations and that you can learn from yourself when you make mistakes. I mean, for example, Teddy Roosevelt, when he first got into the state legislature, and you're absolutely right, you never think of him as humble. In fact, they always said he loved to be in the center of attention so much that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride <laughs> at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral, right? So he gets in the state legislature, and he realizes later that he had a swelled head. He was so glad to be there. He's blistering comments about his opposition. He's pounding his fists. He makes headlines. He's become famous. 
and all of a sudden he can't get anything done. So he realizes, he said, I realized that I had to change my way, that I was, I was not allowing myself to get any compromise or collaboration. So that's the ability to learn, to grow in office, and that's what I mean by humility. We often hear folks talking about our times now as being such turbulent, turbulent times. And yet you, you almost forget, when you look at the, these four figures, talk about the, the, the turbulence that surrounded them and their ascension to the offices and what they had to deal with, especially when they first walked in. Oh, I mean, think about Lincoln coming into office. I mean, he later said that if he had known the turmoil he would face, the South was already seceding before he even got there, war was beginning to ramp up, 600,000 people would soon die. He said he, wouldn't have thought, he couldn't have thought he could have lived through it. Or Teddy Roosevelt, too, coming in after the assassination of McKinley. There's a real mood of rebellion in the country because of the Industrial Revolution, and the, there's a gap between the rich and the poor, and the working class is feeling like they're not getting a fair shake, and they're not. And he comes in and has to deal with all that tension. There's bombs in the street. There's a nationwide strikes going on. And then, of course, FDR coming in at the height of the Depression. When he said he was afraid the whole house of cards might collapse before he even took the oath of office, and then LBJ's got the assassination in front of him, and the country is obsessed with looking at the killing of JFK and then the killing of, of Oswald and the feeling that he's not worthy of being the successor. And the civil rights movement has heated up and the bill's stuck in the Senate. So each of those had really turbulent times. And it's important for us to remember that in the time we're in right now. But they were the right person for the time. And the citizens were active, which makes a big difference. There's so many great stories here and, and so many that make you feel, as you said, that you're, you're connecting with them in some ways. I was fascinated by when you talked about who each of their heroes were. Tell me about that. But it came at the end. I suddenly realized there's like this family tree that, that covers the whole history of our country because LBJ's hero was FDR. I mean, he called him his political daddy. He met him when he was running for Congress. And he did the, he was in the NYA, the National Youth Administration, and Eleanor Roosevelt had come and said it was the best program in the country. So that was his hero, and he modeled his whole early life as a young New Dealer on FDR. FDR's hero was Teddy Roosevelt. In fact, he was hoping that he would have the same trajectory as Teddy when he's a young law clerk at 28. And they're all talking about what's going to happen to us. And he says, well, I know what I'd like. I'd like the state legislature, you know, and then I'd like to eventually go to the assistant secretary of the Navy. And then I'd love to become governor. And then who knows, maybe the presidency. Polio cut that in a different way, which he didn't know at the time. But then anyway, so Teddy Roosevelt's hero is Abraham Lincoln. In one of the summers in 1902, when he was facing this huge coal strike, he read all nine volumes of Nicolay and Hay. And he would come out and talk to people and say, he got through this. There was a you know, right and a left, and he's in the middle, and I can do the same thing. And he learned from him over and over again. And then his hero was um, Abraham Lincoln's hero was George Washington. So it's amazing to just think you go from, you know, LBJ to FDR, from FDR to Teddy Roosevelt, from Teddy to Abraham Lincoln, from Abraham Lincoln to George Washington. It's the history of our country. Yeah, the thread running through yeah. the fabric of all of their lives. When you look at the, the four of them, they're, they're such very different men. Even you look at the Roosevelts, same extended family, same lives of privilege, but still so terribly different. Did you find a, a single sort of consistent strand of, uh, or a trait, a leadership trait that, that identified each of them? I think I'd have to choose that the most important one was empathy. And it's either born in you, which it was, I think, for Lincoln, and maybe for LBJ. 
which means that you understand other people's points of view, that you can have a feeling about other people's ways of life. I mean, Lincoln felt that as a young kid. He would watch his friends putting hot coals on turtles and knowing that it was producing pain, and he would go after them for doing that. And um, in LBJ, too, when he was a young person and he taught at the school, Katula, and he saw the pain of prejudice on these kids' faces, and he felt it emotionally. He did everything he could to make their lives better that year he was teaching. Whereas for both Roosevelt's, they had to develop empathy. They led such a privileged background for other people through politics. That's when politics can be the most broadening thing. For Teddy, he said, understandably, he said, when I went into politics the first time, it wasn't to make people's lives better. I just liked the adventure of it. But then he saw decrepit tenements. He saw cigar factories. He saw children working. And he began to say, I want to change their lives. And I think for FDR, polio produced even much deeper empathy than some of the natural one he must have had. He suddenly identified with other people to whom fate had an un unkind hand. So I think if that's a quality that's missing in a leader, then how do you get to other parts of the country where people feel differently than you? How do you help people that are different from your region or your class or your race? Um, and then the ability to communicate that empathy. Um, in the technology of your time and be able to persuade people to mobilize them to action would be the other side of that empathy, I think. When you look at the, the turmoil that we're experiencing today, and I'm not talking about just politically, I'm talking about both sides of the aisle, societally, culturally, which of the four that, that you chronicle here, which of the four do you think would be best suited to be a leader today? I think it would be Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, the reason being that his time was similar to ours. I mean, he always warned that the rock of democracy would founder if people in different regions or races or religions began to think of themselves as the other. And it's that division in our country today that I think underlays much of the political turmoil. It's the, the larger division that's there. And he knew how to speak to people in different parts of the country. He also would be great tweeting, I think. He had those mm -hmm. short phrases that he could do, speak right. softly and carry you a big Could you state. imagine Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> tweeting? <laughs> Absolutely. But he would think, I think, before he tweeted. Right. Yes. But don't hit until you have to, and then hit hard. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. Did he? I, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But I think, most importantly, what he argued for was a square deal. So he was arguing, so there's people on the left, there's people on the right, and he's saying, I want a deal for the capitalists and the wage worker. I want a deal for the rich and the poor. If you're a rich person, that's fine, as long as you deal fairly. If you're a union guy, I'll be for you, unless you deal unfairly. So that, I mean, he think he would stand right in the center, but progressively moving the country forward. And he had a sense of humor. He had a self-deprecating sense of humor. My favorite story is when that famous journalist wrote a review of his Spanish-American war memoir. And he said he had so placed himself in the center of every action of the war, he should have called it alone in Cuba. <laughs> and so what does he do? He writes a letter to the journalist and saying, I regret to inform you that my wife and my intimate friends absolutely love your review of my book. Now you owe me something. I want to see you. I want to meet you. And they become friends. He was able to be friends with journalists, knowing they would still criticize him. He could criticize them. And the partnership he, he joined with the investigative reporters the muckrakers who become the golden age of journalism. So I think he had the energy. He understood, I mean, in today's world, you have to be somewhat the center of attention, at least at the moment, given the media world. And he could definitely be. He was the most colorful president we'd had up till that time. Last question for you. In, in, in trying to learn the lessons of history, 
And, and we're so often told things such as that, if, you know, if we don't learn history's lessons, we're, we're bound to repeat them. Um, the notion of, of the past, what Faulkner said, the past isn't even past. Do you get a sense that, that our leaders of today, and I'm talking about across the board here, that our leaders of today don't grasp that, don't grasp the need to learn from, from these men and their turmoil and their leadership skills, don't, don't grasp the need to learn so that they can lead better? Yeah, I mean, I worry that that's, that's not happening. Even forgetting only our leaders, I mean, history courses are being narrowed in a lot of our colleges now because of STEM stuff. And what you get from history, it's as a human being, not simply as a leader, is you see how other people dealt with troubles and how they came through adversities and what were their strengths and what were their weaknesses. And I'd like to think that studying leadership helps you in your everyday lives. And, and you just need to take the time to go back a few decades. And it's like you learn from your parents, your grandparents, so learn from Abraham Lincoln, learn from George Washington. These people knew something about the strengths of leadership and some of the techniques you can actually follow. When I think about Lincoln's writing a hot letter when he was mad at somebody and then putting it aside till he cooled down psychologically, never sending it, how helpful that would be to kids writing emails too quickly sure. today, right? Absolutely. So, and, and, Broader than that, you understand their emotional intelligence when they're dealing with a team, how they're able to share credit and shoulder blame. These are human qualities that many of them magnified by becoming leaders and how you grow through your mistakes. Um, I just got to believe that everybody should love history because it really yeah. can teach you. It teaches you about human nature. And one of the things Teddy Roosevelt said are, if you want to be a leader, you have to read books because books are about human nature. You read it in poetry, you read it in prose, you read it in drama, and you're going to learn about human nature. And that's what leaders need to know more than anything. Well, no matter what you want to be, you have to read this book here because <laughs> it's, as always, just a, 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 you take us on a fabulous and very personal journey into their backgrounds and the stories. And you come away, as you said, you come away when you close the book saying, I'm saying goodbye to some friends and I'm not that comfortable with that. But it's, it's you and I can talk for hours about this. Uh, it's always so nice to connect I'm with you so and spend some here. time talking with you. And again, just, just another fabulous work by you. Doris, so good to see you. Thank you. You'll Thank be well. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.